Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Forrester CX Cast. This is Sam Stern, joined by my colleague Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And uh, this week, we are really excited to have Greg Cross, who's the Chief Business Officer at Soul Machines, on the line with us. Hi, Greg. Hi, guys. Good to be talking. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, really excited to have you and ask you a few follow-up questions. Yes. So, for some quick background, this isn't my first time speaking with Greg. <laughs> they presented at our Forrester CXSF conference back in October where they showed us some of what they're working on. Um, I then was able to join them on stage to ask some questions where we also solicited questions from the audience. And we had so many questions that we could hardly answer all of them. So I thought it would be great to have them join us again today so that we could share what they said with the CX cast world as well as answer some of those questions. There was this huge presentation that we had on stage at the forum, which we sadly cannot share over audio. But Greg, we will be providing some links in the podcast notes so that listeners can watch videos of what it is that Soul Machine does and creates. But for those listeners who haven't seen it yet, can you briefly describe what Soul Machines does? Yeah, so we call ourselves a human computing company. So we, we have this very you know simple view that as we move into an era where as human beings, we're going to be interacting a lot more with AI, with robots, with self-driving cars and other forms of machinery. We think that these machines will be a lot more helpful to us if they are more like us. So, you know, in simple terms, what we're doing is literally putting a face on artificial intelligence. So the digital embodiment of what we do is we build avatars, but which you can talk to and interact with via, you know, your smartphone, your web browsers, your devices, um, and these avatars are going into large organizations as virtual call center agents and virtual sales agents. Um, um, subsequent to us talking with you guys in San Francisco in October, we, we a couple of weeks back did a, a, our first big U.S. customer announcement announce it, uh, with Autodesk, um, and Autodesk is 3D design software company, is, uh, is a company that that um, we're, we've announced um, jointly that we're working together to deploy their first uh, digital employee, customer service agent called Ava. Great. And so when you say a digital employee, <laughs> I want to really drive home what this experience is. I remember when I was on stage thinking about presenting, we were talking about human and machine and how machines like robots are becoming more human-like. But what this is, is actually, you call it a digital human, right? Because it almost looks as if it is a human. It's such a, a real avatar. And so can you explain maybe a little bit about Baby X, who you have, or what some of these employees that you've created, such as Ava, may look like? There's a number of parts to the technology that we build, and it's probably useful to sort of describe them. So, I mean, the first is the digital embodiment or the, the digital human or digital character that we built. So, uh, you know, we literally, we start by scanning the, scanning the likeness of real human beings. So uh, in the case of Ava, who's the first digital employee for Autodesk, um, Ava is 
actually based on a, a real live professional actor um, who lives here in New Zealand. You know, we have scanned and, and built a, a complete digital version of her. So, you know, um, there's some amazing videos online where you can see uh, Shashila, who is the, the, the actor, the real person, talking about the process of being um, captured as the d- digital likeness or the digital image of Ava. So, so, so that's the first part of um, the process of building a, um, a digital human or a digital employee. So it's capturing the, her, the, the face and her likeness. The second part is actually building out the persona um, behind the face. You know, and that's a design process we work through with you know our clients like Autodesk. Um, um, you know, based on their company values uh, and the sorts of um, ways they you know like to be represented by their um, employees, um, the role that um, Ava is going to play um, in their organisation, um, and the way they would expect Ava to behave and express emotions when she is interacting with their customers in the future. So, um, so you know you've actually got to you know design that personality. The third part of what we do is, you know, which is actually our core technology and where all of the really unique intellectual property that we have exists. And um, so behind the face we've created and the persona we've created, we actually have what we call our human computing engine, which is based in the cloud. But um, we bring these characters to life using effectively what is a virtual nervous system and that virtual nervous system is made up of neural networks and actually an actual biological models or biologically inspired models of mm-hmm. different parts of the human brain so our digital characters have sensory systems so that they you know can see via the webcam on your device and hear via the microphone on their di- device yeah. and they can as a result of being able to see your face they can recognize you they can understand your emotions from the expressions on your face and the tone of your voice uh, and they will respond accordingly based on um, some of the biological models that we built. These digital characters have, for example, virtual neurotransmitters. So if you're smiling when you're talking to one of our digital humans, her brain chemistry will respond exactly the way our brain chemistry responds. Mm -hmm. So if you're smiling, typically it means you're your brain is you know getting flooded with dopamine because you're feeling good about you know so our digital humans have virtual neurotransmitters you know which is what actually creates the you know real live human like emotional responsiveness and in, in the way in which they interact with you I'd love to ask you some questions about this virtual nervous system but really quickly before we dive into that you mentioned how you are actually creating someone who looks like a real person and talks like a real person how do you determine sort of the best avatar to create. It sounds like the brand thinks about how they want to represent themselves or what their employee looks like. Do you also test this experience with actual users or customers to see how they're responding to the avatar? You know, there's many ingredients that go into selecting the real people who we want to turn into 
digital characters. I mean, so first off, we're trying to build a diverse range of characters. You know, so we're building men and women. We're building digital humans that are of different ethnicities. We're building digital humans that are of different age groups. So all of that's going on as we sort of build out our population of uh-huh. digital humans. But often when we're working with you know our clients, they will want to select a, a you know a very specific person or a, a person with some very specific attributes to be uh-huh. effectively become the face of their digital brand. So in the analog world, people have often gone about you know when they're selecting a face of their brand for a TV commercial, they'll you know, go out and they'll do casting calls and, and they'll select a person who they think will, you know, be appealing to the customers that they're trying to communicate with. So, you know, some of our customers work through that type, you know, that similar type of process. Mm-hmm. Longer term, we, you know, we believe as this technology becomes more commonplace, you know, we think customers will, should actually have a choice as to who they want to interact with. Do I want to talk to a, a male or female? Do I want to talk to the sa- someone who is the same age as me? Do I want to talk to somebody who's the same ethnicity as I am? Do we want to talk to somebody uh, in my native language? Um, you know, um, so all of these things are, are characteristics which you know we will you know start to deploy and work with our clients over time. And in many respects, some of the things I've just described in terms of the way in which you know you're looking to create a digital employee, you know, who will represent the values of the company and will have the emotional capability to do the job and the role that they're being asked to do. Um, there's some pretty strong analogies between, you know, that and the way you actually, you know, you'd go about recruiting a person in real life to do, you know, to become a new employee for your, for your company. I mean, I also think, you know, you're describing sort of this person having this person. <laughs> I'm, I'm slipping into anthropomorphizing <laughs> them already, but you're, you're having this character be able to display or react to emotions that are displayed. And, and Jenny, I think we should get, we should go dive into the details there, but I'm just fascinated by that idea of, you know, there's sort of an inexhaustible emotional resource if it's working well, whereas humans, and you know, there's been a lot of research on this, are, you know, having to do sort of emotional labor is really taxing after a while, right? That they, it's, it's hard if you're having to show lots of empathy, do lots of active listening, deal with really, you know, tricky and sort of varied emotions from different customers with different needs. Uh, that really wears you out. You know, there's a lot of burnout there, whereas this character, you know, in addition to obviously, you know, being very scalable, never gets tired. I think one of my favorite sort of studies in this realm is the fact that if you're before a judge who's hasn't had lunch yet and is hungry, they're less likely to be lenient with, um, you know, letting you get out of, of prison, right? Get out early. And I would imagine this character doesn't have that kind of a flaw or limitation. But at the same time, I'm saying that and then wondering some of those flaws or those limitations are what make us human. So I wonder how you think about that, right? That trade-off between, you know, making them sort of always be perfect and, and working that way versus reflecting some of those, you know, as we think of flaws, but the things that make us really human. Really, really interesting point. I mean, physically, we don't set out to design our digital humans to be flawless and look perfect. Um, you know, if you've seen any of our digital humans, you know, their skin that we've created has the same flaws in digital in its digital form that it has in its real form. So, um, you know, so we're not setting out here to create... Um, 
um, flawless or, or, or perfect looking digital mm. human. I think you're right, physically they won't get tired, and but they, you know, there are a couple of things that are important. One, they learn from every single interaction, so mm. you know, their ability to respond to you individually as a person, individually as a customer, you know, perhaps for a very large organisation, their ability to respond to you and get to know you and remember you, because these driven by AI is is quite different to you know, a real person who you know if they're dealing with a, you know a thousand people a day or a couple of hundred people a day there's no way a real person is going to remember all of that information so a digital human's going to recall all of those uh, you know the emotions you expressed how you felt about the products or the services that they were calling you about um, so they're going to always have that knowledge and that um, those memories of those interactions um, but they have different types of limitations you know they are only going to know you know what knowledge our customers have um, provided them with so there is always a chance you know that um, you know certainly you know in the early phases of their deployment that you know they may not know everything that you may want to ask them so you know at that point in time you know we actually have to plan if you like exit route from your, mm-hmm. your conversation with the, with the digital human into talking to a real person whether it be you know on a down a phone line or in a retail store you know or some sort of service center um, as um, exits so typically when we start deploying these digital characters in their roles for the first time they're positioned as trainees and the value proposition is the more you interact with them the more they will learn and the more they'll be able to help you look I think with these digital characters there's you know different limitations that will um, which will mean that there will always be the need to you know provide interaction with real people and handling perhaps say some of the more you know complex customer service or sales processes I like that example of onboarding them, just as you would have to a new employee, which actually takes me to one of the audience questions that we had, because instead of having a a human walk in and you talk to them about the company, um, here you have a digital human, right, who is using (laughs) data and algorithms. So I'll ask you the question that the audience asked during the forum, which was, what is the process to teach a digital human how to respond? And similarly, how would this happen in business? Would a company submit a knowledge base and then algorithms are applied and take over? And so how do you think about how you onboard them initially from the digital data perspective? So the knowledge base for a digital human and a digital employee mm-hmm. is going to come from the AI platform or the AI corpus that the company has you know, mm-hmm. created and built. So that could be a, it could be an IBM Watson. You know, there are a number of you know um, AI platforms and corpuses and solutions that you know people are using out there. So the knowledge base, the you know the answers to the questions and the questions that customers will ask. I mean, that has to be created and it needs to be set up and built out as content um, in the AI platform. So if that content is not there, um, you know, the digital human's simply not going to know. Um, and, and, you know, once again, you know, that's not too different to a, you know, somebody who's starting a job in a new industry with a new company for the first time. I mean, they're going to have to, to 
learn on the job. They're going to have to be, learn by being taken through ed- different education processes and um, onboarding processes. So that's the same for you know, a, a digital human. Yeah, and there's a lot of work involved in, in, in building that out because you're, you're actually constructing the conversations and the dialogue um, that the digital humans are going to have. And those conversations and, and, and those dialogues you know, means that there, there are often multiple answers to the same question. There are multiple answers to the same question depending on, for example, the emotional state of the person asking the question. If the person is mm. relaxed and happy, the way in which you'll deliver an answer is going to be very different to the way in which you'll um, respond if somebody is terse and impatient, for an example. So um, those sorts of some of the design processes and the, you know, the upfront investment that's required to set up the, that core knowledge base for the digital employee. And does the learning all come in the sort of reactions, you know, engendered by answers or by, you know, tone from the customer they're interacting with? Or is it is it that plus follow-up? I'm not even really imagining what the follow-up would be, but are they, you know, collecting the data or, you know, doing surveys later and, and sort of using that to sort of recalibrate the digital employees? Or how, how does it sort of the learning work? Like any AI platform, the more you interact with people, the, the more different ways you ask questions, the more different uh, interactions there are, the more the system learns. And that's one of the benefits of an AI platform is that once you have established it and, you know, put it out into the wild um, and and allow more and more interactions to learn, the system learns the different ways that the same questions are asked and the different ways that um, you you deliver the responses and answers. So um, the way it ranks and the relevancy of the potential answers continues to improve over time. With a human uh, agent, right, they can maybe, maybe they learn in the moment, especially in the early days as they're getting onboarded and coming up to speed. They learn based on how the reaction, you know, it does did that answer the customer's question or not? Did did my tone, uh, you know, sort of making a guess about their tone and what that says about their emotional state? My response is it sort of mirroring that or reflecting that appropriately or not? And what can I derive from how they react to me? And I'll, I'll sort of learning and reacting as I go. Um, but then often, you know, in a lot of call center environments and, and retail store environments with real employees, they are doing follow up with managers or reviewing survey results as they come back or you know doing call listening to yeah. review and, yeah, and, and reflect and, and so I'm wondering about that the people responsible for for you know a digital call center agent will be continually monitoring the performance of the, of the digital call center agent you know what questions it um, handles well you know what questions it's not handling well what points um, are causing frustration for customers what additional knowledge needs to be provided to the digital human yeah. you know do we need to vary their emotional responses you know in certain circumstances that is part of managing the system on an ongoing basis one of the questions that we got was why don't you just have a real human interacting (laughs) what are the advantages of a digital representative for example and i feel like we've touched on that a little bit right it's more scalable they can sense emotion in real time and respond to it and they have this whole knowledge base of information and they can personalize it to a degree that you know everyone feels like they are that frequent customer where they know what coffee you want (laughs) so you get this high degree of personalization but so i'm curious because in addition to how how smart these digital humans are. There's also the matter that 
I, as a person, as a customer, am now talking to this digital human who looks a lot like a human and is, you know, smiling and creating these gestures that feel really human-like and talking as if they're a human, but they're not. And so this technology has really blurred the line between, you know, when I talk to a robot, uh, such as, you know, SoftBank's Pepper, who's gesturing like a human and talking, but it is clear to me that it is a machine, as opposed to talking to one of these uh, digital human avatars, which blurs that line so much that I may feel empathy towards this digital human, whereas they're not uh, giving empathy back. So I'm curious as to if uh, you've conducted any user testing as to how people respond to these types of experiences that are so new and different. Yes, you know, we've conducted a number of pilots and user studies. So what we're seeing is a very high percentage of people who interact with our digital human humans see them as being their preferred way of interacting with a, with a company because they are available immediately. Um, they find them emotionally engaging um, because face-to-face communication is the most emotionally engaging form of communication we human beings can have. Uh, and they find that they're able to, you know, to feel like they're getting a highly personalized interaction. Um, I would, you know, I'll caveat that with the fact that it's still very, very early days for, for, mm-hmm. for this type of technology and we're still learning and and you know, one of the key things when the really innovative companies are looking at now when they see disruption coming at, um, at them, they start looking very closely at the customer experience they are creating and how they you know, reimagine, reinvent, reinvigorate the customer experience. And that's a big challenge for large organizations because obviously they can have millions, if not tens of millions of um, customers to deal with. And as we've seen you know, over the last 50 years companies get larger and larger and you know it's become incredibly difficult for them to create you know highly personalized customer experiences you know AI and you know the digital human technology that we've created you know is you know a turning point you know in many respects and that we you know now have the capability or we're you know we're starting to have the capability to build a you know highly personalized customer experiences so you know organized Organizations or industries where dealership networks or distributorship networks are, are going to collapse under disruption, you know, the, the brand owners are, you know, having to try and figure out new ways to build, you know, highly personalized relationships and direct relationships with as many customers as they can as quickly as they can. So these are some of the sorts of areas that, you know, we're seeing our initial customers working closely with us to understand the potential for the technology and the potential for them to help them through this massive period of disruption. Another question that we got that dives into this thought about how users feel interacting was the topic of ethics. So I'll read this question and I'm curious to hear your response. That in the topic of ethics in artificial intelligence and digital technologies, what adverse effects or negative use cases have you tested where this could be used? Or how could this be evolved in a negative way and how can we prevent it? I guess the dystopian view of AI and mm-hmm. robots, um, um, which is, you know, I guess in many respects the popular view fueled by Hollywood and, and our love and thirst for um, horrific science fiction movies. Um, Look, I mean, there are, I mean, you know, we look at this technology as providing some amazing ways 
to help people and to change people's lives. So, you know, I mean, we tend to focus on positive opportunities that can be created using this technology and the potential for this technology, not just, you know, one, two, three years out, but five, ten, twenty years out. You know, we have kids today that don't have access to teachers because, you know, governments and communities can't afford to provide them. So imagine if we could provide digital teachers to every, you know, every child in the world. There are communities and remote areas that have no access to health um, care professionals. Imagine if we could provide digital health care professionals to, to those communities. So, I mean, there are so many opportunities, there are so many positive opportunities to make a, a, a great contribution to society. I guess the point I want to make about, you know, could a digital employee go bad? Um, well, the reality is real employees sometimes go bad too. A digital employee, uh, you know, is not an autonomous human being. You know, they don't have freedom of thought. They don't have, you know, we don't even provide them with freedom of emotional expression. You know, they, you know, a digital employee, let's say they're a customer service agent, for example, will not be programmed to be able to re- express anger or disgust or some of those more negative emotions, which, you know, uh, maybe a, a, a tired, you know, real customer service agent at the end of a, you know, long shift and lots of, you know, customer calls on a single day may, you know, get frustrated and um, and angry, um, maybe. Um, but at the end of the day, the digital employees, the digital characters that we're creating have a specific role, they have a specific persona, and they can't go outside of that. It's, you know, I mean, that's just the way in which they're built. Um, they're not autonomous. They don't have freedom of, you know, freedom to, to do whatever they like, think whatever they like, say whatever they like. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so to a certain extent, you know, I think that puts, you know, um, some boundaries around those types of negative views. Um, you know, I guess the ultimate dystopian view that, you know, AI is going to take over the world and robots are going to rule over us. Um, um, you know, we believe, you know, I mean, we really strongly believe that if, you know, the machines that, you know, and I go back to where we started this conversation, then, you know, if the machines are more like us, they have have you know, more human qualities, they have the uh, ability to express emotion and relate to us in the same way we relate to each other, maybe that means the AI systems will only learn the good things about human nature uh, and not mm-hmm. some of the bad things about human nature. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, there are good people and bad people in the world and there are people that always want to use technology to make a positive difference to, to the world in which we live and there's a few you know, evil people who, you know, um, have a different point of view. So, I mean, if AI, you know, is going to be misused, um, and you know, um, and some of the dystopian, you know, views become reality, the biggest reason for that is likely to be um, that is being driven by evil people in the real world who <laughs> use you know technology to cause damage and, and cause problems. Obviously, we've seen that before with lots of other technologies that have been developed too. That's true. They're still operating within constraints. So just like with every algorithm out there that we're talking about, concerns with ethics, 
this is the same thing, right? You have to watch out for biases. You have to watch for how it's acting, for how people are responding, and set the constraints for them to operate within and learn. Um, something that's really interesting that that brings up, though, is you know if we decide what is a good response and a bad response, what is a good personality and a bad personality, we're making these judgment calls on sort of what is good and bad within humans and human mm -hmm. nature to then program these digital humans. So I'm sure that's a big topic that we, we may not be able to answer right now, but I think that is something interesting because this raises that question. Absolutely. I mean, that goes, to, I mean, ultimately to the core of, you know, humanity, um, <laughs> you know, the societies we, we build, the communities we live in, the organizations and companies we create and what their, their vision of the future is, what their purpose is, who they're there to serve and, and the difference they're there to make um, to the world. And, you know, I mean, the vast majority of organizations are there, you know, to create value um, for all of those component parts of the world in which we live in. So, um, you know, I think we've got every reason to to be optimistic that in, in the vast majority of cases, um, this technology is going to be used for the right reasons. It's probably a good positive note to... Uh end on here. Greg, thank you so much for joining us and we really appreciate it. And for our listeners, we will post some links to some of the videos that Jenny was alluding to before and some related research as well so you can dig in more on this topic. Thank you all for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of CXCast. And remember, your customer's perception is your customer experience reality.